Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Joe's Nose. I've got a great episode today. I've got my friend Jim Burnworth. You've seen him on Western Extreme, uh, just Choose Your Weapon, a lot of other shows. He's got some great stories to tell you. He's super, super technical, so get out your notepads and get ready and write stuff down, because if you're an archer, you're going to learn all kinds of cool stuff. I know I have, and I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Jim, take it away. Tell us what you got, brother. Welcome to another episode of Doe's Nose. I have a good friend of mine on the show today. I'm super, super excited. Um, his name is Jim Burnworth. He is the host of the Outdoor Channel's Western Extreme. Hi, Jim. Hi, how are you, Dozer? Good morning, Kona. <laughs> I love it. We're, uh, if you're wondering what that hum is in the background, we're actually on a mutual friend of ours boat. Call it, it's, the boat's called the Maverick. Um, the captain is Trevor Child. He was awesome enough to take us out here in this beautiful ocean today. It's, it's an absolute gorgeous day. What we're fishing for is the infamous thousand pounder, the grander of the Pacific blue marlin. And you've never been marlin fishing before, have you? You know what? I've been marlin fishing about 30 times and I've never caught one. Oh, so, my bad. My so bad. I might be better with a bow than I actually am with a fishing <laughs> rod. Now, the good thing about uh, about Kona, what uh, some people know and, and a lot of people don't know, is it is the marlin capital of the world. And it's world famous for having all the big ones, the granders, caught here. So this is your opportunity. Are we going to get it done? I'm hoping so. I tell you what, like if you look at the ocean conditions today, and I mean, Kona is so magical because you can only fish like three miles offshore and you're right in the trenches where all the big fish are. And we're a little bit late in the season, but that's where all the big fish are. Yeah, you know, the last week there's been some monsters caught. A few friends of ours, uh, Kevin, hooked onto a 900 plus pounder. Could have been a grander. They didn't. They didn't bring it in. Uh, a few others got some really, really big monsters. So I think our odds are are really, really good right now. And um, the tides on the rise. So we're going through a tide change. Uh, if we if we end up hooking up, we're going to have to put this podcast on pause and then come back and resume it so i think it's going to be a race who's going to get to the rod first <laughs> well i think you're up i'm closer to the door bro you are close to the door but i'm watching what's going on right i'm looking right out the window so if we get a bite i see it we're going to stop this podcast we're going to run out there we're going to catch this fish hopefully this podcast goes all day long because we're going to be catching so many fish we're going to have to interrupt this thing 20 30 times <laughs> but uh I, I know you're as excited as I am to, to get into this thing and talk about all kinds of cool stuff. You and I, we've been doing hunting trips for a long time. Yep. And we've Super traveled fun. all over, um, just you know, seeing some magnificent places and getting to do something that a lot of people don't actually get to do. And that's get out there. Get out there in, in these mountains and these gorgeous places and see what God has given us. You know, see these wonderful creatures 
and and that we're blessed with you know and what what are some of the favorite places that you like to go to you know and i think i i got the bug many years ago i've been a western kid I grew up in tillamook oregon so i mm-hmm. hunted a lot of roosevelt bulls and blacktail bucks and being in the pacific northwest maybe a western style kid a lot of loggers you know a lot of a uh, um, a lot of industry around, you know, wildlife related things. And so, um, I just got a love for it. My first arrow left the bow when I was 12 years old and I was completely hooked. But in modern years, you know, almost 12 years ago for the first time I went to Africa and now I've been wow. back every single year for I the last there, 10. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it's like, it's the most ultimate hunting trip. You can learn five years of, of, of hunting related stuff in one year over in Africa. There's just target festing environment. They're everywhere. Wow. Wow. Now, what kind of animals um, are you seeing that you go over there? Well, I've been fortunate enough to shoot nearly all of the uh, Plains game related stuff over in Africa. Mm-hmm. And then I've been in Zimbabwe. You know, I've shot a, I shot a crocodile that had an eight year little boy's jersey inside of it that was missing what? for three months. Oh my gosh, no way. Yeah. And then uh, the hippos, uh-huh. which is like uh, probably the dumbest thing I've ever done. We had shot a hippo and it, uh, after about 45 minutes, it starts to bloat. So I, it was so far from shore that we had to swim for it. Now this happened to be in the same water that I had shot the crocodile the day before. So what? not only is there more hippos, but they're actually crocodiles. Jumped down to the skivvies, jumped in, grabbed a rope, and I swam it over a thousand yards. And what the most amazing thing about it is, is that hunters are the greatest conservationists in the world. I talk right. about it all the time. When there are more value on an animal, there are more of them. And these people live from subsistence, you mm-hmm. know? And so you have to realize that it, when you're in Zimbabwe, there's an entire backstory about Zimbabwe in general and what and the importance of the wildlife and how it plays out. But imagine that you have a family of three or four, you have a couple of kids, you and your wife, you don't have any refrigeration, you have one water hole, it might be three or four miles, every day you have one person in the family go down and get some water, bring it back. And then you make a make fix fence, some kind of a, like a little fence, anything you can make it out of. And then you have a little high rise right next to where you actually live, like your little mud hut that you built. And that's your yearly supply of food all up in that, that one hunt. Now in one night, that elephant or that, or that, um, you know, that hippo comes Mm -hmm. in and it chomps your entire yearly supply of food. Now you have no way to protect yourself. You have no way to, to defend what, what rightfully is yours. And now Mm -hmm. it affects your entire year of being able to eat, you know, and something super simple. And so there's a lot of what they call PAC, problem control animals. So in Zimbabwe, with the economy and everything that's going, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of problems. And so once I ran that hippo onto the beach and we grabbed a rope and we all together, there were over 350 people. None of them have cell phones. You don't even know how they got there. They don't have vehicles, mm-hmm. but all of them showed up on this one site to bring anything that they could home. They have a knife and a wheelbarrow. They're trying to do everything they possibly can to take that meat home for their family. So and they, you, they utilize every single piece of that animal, don't they? You won't even believe it. You won't even believe it. Like I had hunted elephants all over, um, you know, um, two of them with my bow and arrow, which is the largest thing on planet Earth you can actually shoot with a bow and arrow. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people would think, well, elephants are endangered or they're extinct. They're just, uh, but nothing could be further than the truth. In Zimbabwe, there was over 100,000 elephants that migrate in and out of Wanky Park every year, only sustain about 44,000. I could drive you in a straight line for 60 miles, and every tree is completely devastated and gone. Right. That elephant eats 50 pounds of feed today, drinks 50 gallons of water, has no predation, and lives to be 65 years old in a population of people that are starving. And those are the same trees that the giraffes eat and stuff like that. The elephants will come in and just decimate them. 
Well, it's really, really important for the moisture content because when you see a tree in Africa that is like, let's say, 30 feet tall, most likely it's 90 feet in the ground. And the moisture and the dew content at the bottom of the tree every day has some overall effect on the overall. But I've seen so many bull elephants that are really slobs just walk over to a tree that's like, let's say, 65 years old mm -hmm. and push on it with his head until he knocks it over, pull one leaf off of it and walk away. Wow. And so you have to realize that every animal on planet Earth has to be managed at some level. Right. And, and you also have to realize you have a water hole, and around that water hole there might be diker, kudu bulls, sable, um, you know, uh, kudu bulls, demsbuck, other animals that are drinking out of that that have a home range of one to two miles, right? Right. But now these elephants will walk, you know, 50 miles in one direction, drink that water hole dry in another week or two, and then move on. Because um, so they drink, what, 50 gallons a 50 day? 50 gallons a day. Wow. And so. eat 50 pounds of food a, a day. Yes. Wow. That they have is no a... predation, live to be 65 years old. That is absolute crazy. Yeah, and they're really an amazing animal, and I think I respect them. But you have to realize that all of those funds are going to be spent on the ground in Africa directly. It's funny because a lot of people think, well, we're talking about elephants, and that's kind of like an unpolitically correct type of a, mm -hmm. a scenario where people don't really get emotionally attached, and they don't really realize the problems that are going on around animals in the world, and mm -hmm. now hunters really do come to the rescue in many ways. But I always look at it, I always say, hunters, when he puts value on an animal, there are more of them. Right. And so if you look at the Engadi Deer Association over the border in Mexico, I a few years back, I got a real privileged day. It was a day that changed my life. It would allow me to think about things in another level. But Grandpa grabbed all the grandkids and out of an old Ford F-150 pickup, two-wheel drive, he says, we're all going to go on a hunt together tonight. So I was just there to just enjoy and to see the, you see the light in their eyes and just experience a hunt, not like what I do, but like what they do. So everybody grabbed a 22 long rifle, way too small to take a deer. Everybody jumps in the back of the truck and I'm just observing. And we go around the ranch and every single time we see a doe or a fawn or a buck, didn't matter what it was, everybody in the back of the truck is just lighting them up, just firing as fast as they could. Why? Because that animal only had meat value. And mm -hmm. meat is important, but the value of the animal is much more than meat. If I had told grandpa that I was willing to pay him $3,000 for every mature buck that a hunter wanted to come and hunt, he would tell them kids, no more shooting any more does or fawns. Go build some water holes. Go figure out how to steal the deer on the, off the neighbor's fence and bring them on our property. Let's figure out how to build some food plots and let's protect these deer. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's really about. There are more there are more animals because of it, and that's the deal. Now, what about conservation? You know, we talked about Africa and Mexico. What about right here alone in the United States? You know, what are what are we doing to help make this happen? You know, a few years back, Dozer, I became like a, you know, the national spokesperson for the Mule Deer Foundation, and there's uh -huh. a lot of stuff going on internally, and mule deer have our largest problem out of the North America 29, big game animals, out of pretty much everything. Sheep have been on recovery, but their numbers have always been low at some level, and a lot of those funds are actually going back onto the ground, and if we as hunters don't fund it, no one does. Millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars are being spent for conservation directly, and our tag money everybody's tag money. If you look at grandfather just getting $3,000 getting paid to go on the ranch, we as hunters who are paying our, our yearly dues, if you will, right. our tag fees, go into that conservation, paying for those game biologists, paying for those, those game wardens to be out there to, to look at it. And so mule deer are our number one target, in my opinion, where mm -hmm. I'm spending the majority of my time and effort 
because I love mule deer bucks and I want to be around for my great great grandchildren. And so a lot of conservation is going on the ground with surveying and research and looking at those. And different that's the places. same thing with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation as well, too. Yeah, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has done a lot. You know, there's been a lot of elk transplant. They've done a lot of land buying over the last few years mm -hmm. and uh, have done a really good job, you know. But I think everybody just needs to join forces on the Mule Deer Foundation. It's, again, the smallest organization with the biggest problem. Those numbers are declining. There are all types of things that are happening around our western United States that we need to be protecting those mule deer. And uh, we've, we've seen the numbers decline in a lot of areas. Right. Now, are you a member of the National NRA? National yeah, Rifle I think everybody should be. And if you're not, you're not a red-blooded American that loves firearms. Right. It's part, of, it's part of what this country is built on. Yep. Second Amendment, the one that protects all the rest. Exactly. Now, um, what kind of uh, rifles do you... I know you have a lot of sponsors. You know, you're, you're Bo, you're a Bowtech guy. You know, um, I, I think hey, firearms... What are, what are your firearms? You know, those are from a very young age, I fell in love with a firearm. Um, I mostly was a bow hunter. My first arrow left the bow when I was 12 years old. I was hooked. But, um, you know, my father-in-law was a big influence in my life early on. I grew up in Tillamook, Oregon, mm -hmm. you know, and it's really super dense, super steep, super remote. It's always cold. It's always wet. It's always foggy. And some of the best hunters I know about live there. And so... Um, oh, that's where the cheese is from, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah, that cheese. Exactly. Tillamook cheese, dairy farmer. So, you know, it's just, it's a different culture the way we grew right. up. But these, it's really difficult to shoot these elk across these canyons. And so forever I used to pack for them and then I started hunting with them. But I remember being like 22 years old, I had a little 300 Weatherby and we would always have a spotter and a shooter and we'd be sitting next to each other and we'd be shooting across and they'd say, oh, you're one elf link low and half one to the left. Mm -hmm. And then I took a, a scope that had a little piece of dust in it and I shot this bullet over 700 yards across this canyon. And I thought about it all summer long. And then I came back and concocted my own little recipe where I bought a Mark IV loophole, uh -huh. took it apart, broke it, didn't have enough money to buy the second one, swore that I would sell the first one to buy the second one. And then I, I, uh, I went and bought another one, took it apart, took glue and thread, and started building my own reticle dots, aiming holes, up and down that reticle post, put it back together, had it regassed and uh, went out and started being able to shoot these bulls at long range, and it changed my life. I should wow. have patented that. I mean, think about that. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, that was many years ago, and it would have, it would have nowadays with DOAs from Bushnell and Nikon, and, um, you know, we've got a, lot of, we've got a lot of different holdovers, and started back in the military days, I think, with mill dots, but that really did change my life with firearms, and I've always had a love for firearms and worked out the math and how they, how they shoot and the trajectories and all of that stuff. And so Choose Your Weapon, one of the shows on yeah. the Outdoor Channel, I had Adventures Abroad that lasted for eight seasons on there. And so I've done a lot of firearm hunting on camera and taught a lot as well, but I'm really a bow hunter at heart. Sure, and you're also known as one of the most technical bow hunters on the planet. Like, you've pretty much broke down exactly how archery works and how to improve it and, and the things you've done with Bowtech. And, and you, you, you're coming out with a new broadhead, um, you, your arrows, you, you, I'm sitting here just blown away. The way you talk to me, like, Joseph, you got to do this and that and that. And I'm just like, man, all I've ever done is just, you know, pull the thing back, level it out, aim and fire. And, and you're like, well, we got to do this. We got to break this down. And this is why this is happening. And this is why this is happening. So maybe, maybe you can explain a little bit of what's going on, well, you know, in arrows, in, in these bows. 
Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting. I mean, it definitely is the good old days. You know, I lost my father four years ago to cancer, uh-huh. and he was an amazing man, and he, he had done, I mean, he lived the life of 10 guys. I mean, he's like a, literally amazing, but he used to always say you have to care. Look at everything that you do in your life 1% better. And if you do it 1% better, many times you're 100% better. And so I've always cared. I care about the animals that I pursue. I care about the people that I have in my life that I get to do them with. And I really care about the equipment that I shoot. And because I'm a technical guy, I've wanted to learn more. I didn't want to miss anymore, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't want to miss. Like if I see something and I spend all my time and energy and I walk up the hill and I finally get to the moment of truth and I, and I, I become a donut, you know? I mean, you go from a hero to a zero in 2.3 microseconds, and then you spend your entire next, you know, 10 days reliving that experience in your head on what you would have done differently. And so I started to really pay attention to those things, not only on the hunting side, but also on the technical side, so that I could precisely tune my equipment. And so it's been important. And the archery industry has really wrapped their arms around me. I feel very blessed and fortunate that I was able to do that. And so I've worked with some major engineers. I've been able to... To, uh, I think there's only about three or four of us in the whole entire world that have done the high-speed testing that I have uh-huh. and um, the things that I've learned. And then I've been able to go out and you know uh, show people um, a better way in some cases. That's awesome. And, you, and you're world famous for, for being the, the 12 ringer. Can you break down the 12 ringer for us? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these people don't know what that means. Well, I always say the 12 ring. If you're a 3D shooter out there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you look at the... If you look at a target, and it's, it's about precision. It's about aiming precisely. And mm-hmm. for me, it doesn't matter how big his horns are. There's two things I care about. The number one is that they're mature. Mm-hmm. I'm a big deal on maturity. And number two, if I shoot them perfect. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I personally get excited. I get very little adrenaline. I go through a sequence. I've, I've followed through with that. I've learned it. And I follow my instincts every day of my life. But shooting them in the 12 ring is really important. So... I shoot with both eyes open, mm-hmm. and when I aim with my, my right eye, I watch that arrow diagonally with my left eye. Wow. And if you, those of you that have never shot a bow with both eyes open, it's, a, it's exhilarating. It's really, really amazing. So again, like being able to, to come up with that. But I, but I have an entire sequence that I go through in my shot placement. Mm-hmm. Well, break it down, give me. All right. All right, the first thing is I think a lot of people are physically overdrawn, you know? Okay. Um, that's like the number one issue that I think a lot of people have. And then what I call preloading the trigger. So your stance is super important, especially your draw arm. I think that joint in the back of it is what a lot of people, you know, get in balance and they start pushing and pulling the bow. Mm-hmm. So the very first thing I do is I, when I draw the bow, I put my hand in my bow in a downward angle and have the, the, the cam almost in my lap. And then... When I start to position myself, I put my hand in that one spot. You don't want it in the meaty part of your hand, right? And you don't want it on the other side either. You want it kind of like in the middle at a 45 degree angle through your palm. So it's just kind of resting on your palm at that, that angle down at the bottom so that your fingers are almost at a 45 too. Right. Open-handed type stuff I don't believe in. I'll show you in slow motion how you'll actually grab the bow. And now what I've done is I've allowed myself to put, put pressure on that because that is also an anchor point. And then when I lift the bow, I, uh, I'm able to be super, super consistent. Then when you start to draw the bow, you can break it down and then by putting a lot of pressure on the trigger. You don't want a trigger that has a lot of play in it before it goes off. Right. I shoot a, a, a back tension style release. I have over a 300 releases. A lot of my friends releases. are doing that. Yeah. So. 
I have over 300 releases and I've tested a lot of them and you want something that just snaps and comes off. Mm -hmm. you, want them to, you want them to be uh, super, super crispy. And how does a back tension release work? Well, you use a series of back muscles and there's different ways. I'm not a real fan of back tension in general because you actually pull yourself out of the shot. Mm -hmm. But the sequence that you go through, you know, by either relaxing your hand or how they go off or the way that the style that you're doing. But the most important part is I pull my front arm against my back arm. But even if you're using a caliper release, the important part is, is did you get that finger embedded, not in the point or the tip of your finger, but into it, and then you learn how much pressure you can physically put on it so that you're a micro hair from it going off. What we call like lock time in a rifle. Sure. How long does it take from the time that I pull the trigger until the bullet comes out of the front of the gun? That's lock time. And that's that. we can equate that to our bows too. So that's an important little you know step that somebody can go through. And then I think the whole aiming, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of tutorials that I've done online. You can go to jimberman.com and be able to read those. You can actually watch them. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, educational stuff that I've done. I'm building one of the largest archery curriculums ever developed that people can actually tune in and actually watch mm -hmm. and go through sequence from everything from bow tuning to kinetics to your your body and the way that it works. And but um, and then the other thing that I tell everybody is is that I pull my front arm against my back arm and I create tension between those two by pulling off of the wall to slow the pin down. So you, in my opinion, you should break your body in half. Your right side, because I'm right-handed, mm -hmm. is the back part with the release is what steers. And the front part is like a limber, but yet stiff enough board to hold the bow. Right. And you relax your body in those two halves. And then pulling into the wall. That's why it's important that your draw length is perfect. And then when you create that tension, that pin will physically set. I, Dozer, you remember when I shot the baseball off the end of bat at 100 yards? Exactly. I was in an entire baseball stadium. Everybody was around. I had to walk onto that. You know, I don't sweat very often. That was one of the times I did sweat. I thought I'd be booed out of the stadium. I thought, oh, am I absolutely crazy for taking this challenge? And then, you know, we got there with the crowd and made everything go away. And my big thing is, is if I had to float, you know, like most people when they shoot, it's like they're watching their pin kind of float around, right. and it's like a bee trying to find the right flower. But when that pin actually sets in the middle of that target, and then you can leave it there long enough to make it go off, mm -hmm. that's my total goal. So if I could not hold the pin in the ball at 100 yards from home plate out to in the outfield, if I couldn't hold it in there, I can't hit it. And so, And then that's the ultimate test, because when everybody's watching, and you have that many people counting on this arrow, it's a moment of truth. This is the time to make it happen. Yeah, but you know what? We do. We do float all around there. How did you figure out? What, what do you use? What is your tricks well, to, to get that bow to stabilize and that pin to just sit right on that baseball at 100 yards? This is what I've been working on pretty much for the last, like, 10 years straight. I, you know, if you can't hold steady, you can't make it happen. So one of the tricks that you can do at home that mm -hmm. will really help you shoot is to put a laser on your bow. Go down sure. to 7-Eleven, find one of those $25 la la lasers. Right. Find one of those $25 lasers. And then you can actually take a little tape and then tape it to the top of your riser. I don't yeah. want you to aim with the laser. All I wanted to do is build a reference because you'll never aim with the laser. You'll always aim with the pin. Then what I want you to do is I want you to back up to 20 yards and I want you to aim at a one inch high contrast, meaning that the background be white with a black dot or a really good fluorescent dot against the white background. And I want you to see how 
steady, you can be on that one-inch target at 20 yards. Okay? Just holding it. Holding it. Just hold the bow. Full draw. Full draw. Don't release an arrow. Just hold it there. Yeah. And then you have a friend go up and physically videotape the laser that's pointed on the wall above it that you're not paying attention to while you're actually aiming and record that, okay, on your phone. All right. And then... Then what you'll do is you'll come back and you'll start practicing. But I want you to start at 10 yards. And this is where it comes into dynamically and statically balancing the bow, changing your draw length, figuring out how much holding weight. If you have a bow that allows you to, to alter the, uh, the amount of holding weight at the end, mm -hmm. then you need to do that. If you've got an adjustable draw stop, go ahead and try that. Try to take stabilizer weight off the front of the bow. Don't make the bow too heavy. I always talk about limb deflection, top to the bottom of the limb deflection. That's complicated. We're not going to get into that in the podcast. These are all tricks that I have. Then at 10 yards for one week, Jim says don't shoot an arrow. Jim says don't shoot an arrow. Don't not shoot one an arrow. arrow. Not one. Not one. Do not shoot one arrow. You don't okay. want to shoot an arrow. You want to just learn how to My aim. My week of practicing is just holding and aiming. That's yep. it. Draw the bow. Hold as it long as, as, I long can. as you can. Once you burn your oxygen, draw back down, wait, and then draw back again. And what you're going to learn is your body and how you can move your rhythm and how far up your elbow should be, how long your drawing should be, how you balance the bow, and this will change your life. One week will change your life. Then on the first week at 10 yards for like an hour a day, I would just want you to do that without shooting an arrow. Okay. Then I want you to move back to 20 yards the second week. And then you start really figuring out how to aim, right? Right. Because your mind has actually never been taught to actually put a dot in a dot and to center itself. And now you can work out all of the pre-stage shot placement, right? Uh -huh. You can work out your peep alignment. You can work out, you know, outer reading your peep around your sight. You can look at where the pin is. You get to concentration. It builds muscle memory. It does all these things for you. It has nothing to do with the release that you thought was part of the sequence. Mm -hmm. And a week later, when you go and have somebody videotape, you know, after two weeks of training, a week at 10 yards, a week at 20 yards, mm -hmm. two weeks later, when they videotape that laser on that wall, you will not believe your eyeballs. Your whole life will change in archery. It's the largest tip I can give for somebody. And if they actually follow through with it and really do it, it will change your life for an archery. Well, I'm excited. I, w I definitely want to try it. It's well, you already shoot good, dude. I shoot really good. Thank you. <laughs> Toot my own horn. Boop, boop. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's, I, for me, it's about comfortable. Being comfortable, being confident um, in how I shoot. I know that I'm going to get up there, and I know where my arrow is going to go. And it, it doesn't matter if I'm 20 yards or 80 yards. It's. I just know, and I watch a lot of guys. Those knows. Those knows. Those knows. Trust me. And so I watch a lot of guys. They they get um, target panic. Yeah. Uh, how do you? And that's that's a great way to. You you've done seminars on target panic. Yeah, target panic is one of those things that I think everybody, if they've shot archery long enough, have had at some stage, right? Mm -hmm. And it comes from trying to make your mind do two things. And most of us guys, our minds don't work like women. We're not able to do two things at one. We can't tie our shoes and chew bubble gum at the same time. <laughs> but it's trying to do two things. It's trying to aim and it's trying to trigger. And your mind can't do two. You have to focus on the aiming and forget about the triggering. And then it's an anticipation of the shot. And I also think that a lot of us hold our breath we hold our breath during the shot sequence, and it's something that we don't usually do. I, on find, a day -to -day I find I take a breath in, and as I release, that helps me set, and then boom, I pop it. Yeah, so you do it at the end? Yeah. 
Yeah, so I think a lot of people get anxiety from the actual holding the breath part. Uh-huh. It sounds weird, but that adds to the anticipation. So I always tell everybody, don't hold your breath until the very end of the shot sequence. A lot of times you can bite your teeth together and it makes you even steadier. Being able to have hard bone on hard bone and, and uh, with your anchoring system. And then when people are in working on target panic, you can do what's called blind bailing. And so you have two parts of two parts to it. And sometimes it takes literal months to get rid of the target panic. I always recommend somebody actually starting to use a back tension release. We don't have time for that, but you can go to your local archery shop, throw a back tension release in your hand and learn how to use it. All the anticipation goes away because there is no trigger on a back tension release, most of them. Most of them, if you're not aiming, you're not in the spot, it won't go off, but it takes the triggering out of it. It uh-huh. just allows you to pull through the shot and you focus on the aiming part. But the other thing is, is to just take your sight off your bow and literally be able to just go through the shot sequence, let it go off without aiming. You follow me? And some yeah. people put an actual piece of cardboard over the top of it so they still are aligning. Um, but that really does help the overall sequence. And there's a lot more to it. And I have a full tutorial online that people can listen to and look at. But um, it's just one of the common problems that a lot of archers represent, you know, early on in their archery career. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, now, what type of bow are you using? And, and I know you're pretty specific on your arrows as well, but let's start with the bow. You know, there's, I feel very, very fortunate. Years and years ago, I got to go walk into the bow tech for the very first time. And when I arrived, I knew I was home. I mean, there was an amazing man named John Strassheim who was one of the originators. And there's still a lot of like just amazing, very technical people who, people who really care about archery. People that have spent their lives, um, you know, figuring out how to make a better mousetrap. Uh-huh. And I always talk about how bows are a mechanical device. They only move as fast as they can move. So how are those engineers going to build a bow? with more kinetic energy that's going to be flatter, mm-hmm. that is going to uh, going to be less noise and vibration. It's going to be easier to shoot, well-balanced, being able to hold a pin in the spot. There's just so much to it. And then you have to realize that most of the archery industry is really patent-derived. And so Bowtech is one of those companies that has led by innovation. And there's not another you know, bow company out there. I always say, I don't care about what you're shooting. Uh, yeah, there is other co- bow companies out there, but yeah, there are. There's a lot of there's a lot of different bow companies out there, but the biggest thing is is that I don't care what you're shooting as long as you're shooting it and you're enjoying the outdoors. But for me, I really do care about what I shoot mm-hmm. and why I shoot it and how it works. And having a technical mind never never allows me to stop. I just didn't want to miss anymore, you know. And Bowtech lets you work and help create what you're thinking. I believe. I truly believe in my heart and my soul that I would never be the archer that I am today without having the right tool. And that is an extension of my right arm. People talk about, oh, Jim's just sponsored. He, you know, he only says Botech, good things about Botech because they pay him. Nothing could be further than the truth. And it doesn't matter who it is. If I, I want to learn it myself, if I don't understand it, I'm going to ask a million questions. And a lot of times I figured out some innovative things that maybe people will overlook things that they didn't pay attention to and mm-hmm. things that became part of my daily life or my daily routine in order for me to perform at the level that I performed at. Mm-hmm. And you know, having a thousand big game anim- animals under my belt has really helped a what? me. A thousand a big game animals. A thousand? Yes, yeah, over a thousand big Holy game animals. Holy shit, dude, that's a lot. That's a lot of arrows. <laughs> and so I've made every single mistake made and no one, uh, no one has made more mistakes than I have. <laughs> But that drove me to be better, you know? And so the technical side of archery has really always, I've always said it's a technical art. It's really drove me to become, um, 
you know, wondrous on how it all works. It's funny because Mr. Ted Nugent's a really good friend of mine, and I've worked on his bows, and we've hung out a bunch, and uh-huh. got to hunt with him. But he always says that, that the mystical flight of the arrow is contagious. And um, I think that's one of the greatest little statements ever. And it's captured my heart, my imagination, and my wonder, and my adventure in my life. Um, but Bowtech has built basically seven attributes. There are seven attributes on the bow that are different than anything ever made. And no other bow company could deny the technology and how it physically works. It shoots the straightest arrow out of any bow made. And yes, every bow shoots 40 yards just fine. Mm -hmm. Everybody's shooting them. But if you care about what you shoot, it's about building a tunable system that is super forgiving so that you can go up and down in spine so that you can get that arrow in full gyro as quickly as possible. And just in the last three or four years, we found some major technology to be able to do that. So if you want me to break it down, you want me to break it down, Dozer? Break it down. Does everybody out there want to hear it broke down? We do. We do. Let me me drop a beat. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice, nice. (laughs) I have to look out the window again because, guys, we are still in Kona, Kona, Hawaii, and we're fishing for big marlin right now, and we're doing a podcast. I mean, this is the greatest work environment on planet Earth. Nothing could be like this. It's absolutely beautiful out here today. It is a sunny day. It's glassy as hell. But uh, we're still waiting for those fish. You know, I, I want to stop this podcast so when a fish hits on, I want to see some action. I'm looking out the window so I can see when the bite happens. You can't see it. But I'm going to be telling you, Jim, get out there now and get that fish. It's funny because I'm looking out the front part of the boat, and I'm looking at a hill that I actually shot a goat on five years ago. (laughs) Right along the ocean. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's called Red Hill. Yeah. Red Hill. It's an old cinder cone. But let's let's get back to your boat. What are you you shooting right now? And why does that that boat work for so good for you? What's cool about it is, is that it has what's called a split bus binary. And the binary cam system is like two bicycle, bicycle tabs of sprocket and it's tied together with the chain so okay. it can't slip each other. So the, the patented technology allows those two cams to be synchronous with each other. And so a single wheel on top, like some other bow manufacturers with, a, with one on the bottom, will never outperform a dual cam system that is asynchronous, that is in time. And then it's a split bus. And what that means is on the upper and the lower part of the tiller, we can adjust and tune the bow so that we get that arrow directly behind of it and get it in full gyro, pushing in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really what it's about. It's about stabilizing the arrow as quickly as possible. Then it also has a new technology that we did last year. It's really cool. It's what's called an adjustable draw force curve. Now, those of you that may sound like really, really complicated, but basically what it does is it allows the user, depending on what he wants to do with the bow, to be completely adjustable without a bow press. It's just like a little module. You go ahead and Allen wrench it, then you can actually move it. And once you've moved it, you can have something that's a super smooth draw, mm-hmm. right? It with very little holding weight, it's kind of squishy in the back. Mm-hmm. Or you can have a medium one. If you're on that tree stand and you just can't draw the bow back and you're trying to shoot a bunch of poundage. Or if you're a He-Man like you, you know? <laughs> a gorilla warrior from uh, the Brad Pitt of uh, Hawaii. Oh my then, you would, then you would go to the- A river the runs mega. through it. Yeah, the major, the major mega, mo- mega mode, which allows uh, um, some real horsepower. And so that's completely adjustable on the cam. Then a lot of people don't realize it, but Bowtech's axle is completely different because it's really hard for the engineers um, to invent a system that has let off and cam timing. And so in the middle of the axle, they built a spline, and it rotates just like during the draw force curve, just like a camshaft or a crankshaft in a car. 
And so it actually is trying to keep that eccentric in the center to have let off and cam timing. A very innovative thing. They spent a lot of money on every single bow. They haven't done a really good job of promoting or telling people about it, but mm -hmm. I'm telling you what, that cam system, and now we have a micro seat dial for cam timing that is literally amazing that there is a really big trick on, um, but that, that is a, that's a cam system that cannot be rivaled by anybody. You know, what about broadheads? Are you an expandable guy? Are you a fixed broadhead? Are you traditional two-bladed broadhead? You know, what's, what's your story? You know, I've made a living um, with my bow and arrow, and so I'm very, very, very just controversial over broadheads altogether. I mean, some major manufacturers have come to me and asked me to shoot stuff. I, I've had to turn them down because I cannot be bought for money. I either mm -hmm. believe it or don't believe it. So I'm not one to just follow the pack. I'm not one to just put my name to something that I don't believe in for some dollars. Mm -hmm. And I at am. first, it's hard, right? Because you got to make a living for I'm, your family. I'm a whore, man. So <laughs> I, everybody out there, you guys, you guys want to pay me? Just yeah, I'll say it like it is. <laughs> <laughs> but over the course of time, I think a lot of people see through it. A lot of people see that you are a guy that's a switcher, or you're just shooting something for some labeled brand. But mm -hmm. And so I've shot an interlock broadhead. They're a great family. I made a living off of it. It's sharp. It's super sharp. It's super small, lightweight. And my goal is to be able to shoot what I call a half minute. I want to be able to shoot uh, a five-inch group out to 100 yards. That's the important part. And if I can do that with a tuning my bow and making it happen, that's pretty significant. I mean, yeah. that's a pretty amazing task to do that with a fixed head. So I'm not a mechanical guy. I'm definitely a fixed head guy. Right. I, you know, I just got back from Australia and I was fallow hunting out there and you saw that nice big rack that yeah. I brought home. Killer, bro. So stoked with that. And, but I shot that with a Rage Extreme and yep. that thing just opened him right up and he didn't even go 20 yards. Yeah. Know? I've heard a lot of people really, really brag about the Rage broadheads. Yeah. But on the other hand, I've seen some things that I'm not real impressed with. So it just... It depends, you know, and, and uh, you, you need something that you can depend on. Mm -hmm. It's funny because I, I uh, there were 823 broadhead patents, and I had spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about it. After a thousand animals and me watching the, the good, the bad, the ugly, I was trying to think about something that would be catastrophically different. And I think I've made something that is so different. It's so, it, it just, it, it hits so many levels. It's it's just like it's not like hey it's just a me too broadhead this thing is like what i call the bomb it's the freak mm -hmm. it's the shrapnel yeah it uh it's unlike anything it's is it on the than, market yet no it's really close though man it's like an inch and a half long and it's going to expand to four and a half inches and that's the very first time anybody's <laughs> ever heard about it the patent went through in three months bro oh my god because it was so different there wasn't even a cross-reference pattern so it's something that i think it'll have a lot of exposure a lot of people look at it um, obviously are you going to leave launch. some with me? Well, I only have, rumor has it, I only have 50 of them. And I have to do a lot of my high-speed testing. Oh, and I just I've need got a lot one. Of my, yeah, you only need one. <laughs> only need one. Yeah, that, yeah, I don't think any archer needs one broadhead. No. Right? I've often said broadheads and arrows are like potato chips. You need more than one. Exactly. Exactly. Now, you have, dude, um, you're, you've shot 74 elk. Yeah, I've been a el big elk hunter. It's my one thing in my life. I tell everybody I'm not patient. I'm not, I'm not quiet. I got big feet. I look like a giraffe running through there. I've had to learn how to shoot so that I could keep up with you everybody. You are kind of goofy. You know, I you're know. big and tall and lanky and just, I know. 
You know, how I'm tall a are you? I'm a goofball until I have a bow in my hand and there's something I need to shoot <laughs> yeah. in front of me. Oh, you get so intense, dude. I've seen you. Just once that, all of a sudden that animal gets right there, all of a sudden, rah, and you get into that <laughs> mode. Dude, it's awesome. I love seeing that. Yeah. How tall are you? I'm six foot six. Wow. Yeah, so I look like a giraffe, bro. You I do. can't hide from them. You do. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah, because I'm like Mr. Stock and get down super low and hiding yeah. behind rocks. You obviously can't do that. No, no. My head sticks out. Yeah. That's why. Now you're. That's probably why you're so good from shooting so far away, too. Well, I don't want to shoot them far away. It's just something I'm an opportunist, and I have what I call my go, no-go gauge, and that really does determine whether I stay on track or not you know the animal's behavior is really important i don't think a lot of people really pay attention to animal behavior they don't pay attention to um um i don't think a lot of people pay attention to uh you know really aiming when it comes down to it and it's hard it's hard the way that i've done it you know a lot of people shoot stuff out of a tree stand or out of a ground blind but i've done it on the ground spot and stock the real way the way that i grew up where i came from and what what it means to me you know, yeah. I think that's super important that I've stayed true to myself the entire time. Oh, shoot. We got a fish on right now. Uh, we're going to come back to this. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Okay, we are back. Wow. What a long day. As you can tell, we're obviously in a different spot now because we were out on the boat all day. We got a bunch of action. Unfortunately, we didn't get any fish. A lot of bites, but no fish. Uh, but, you know, it was a lot of fun. I think you're a little red. You're a little sunburnt. Am I? Am I looking like a lobster? You are looking like a cone of lobster. I can. I apologize. I apologize in advance. I mean, set up a podcast day all the way out in the ocean and then have to take a break, but the miracle of editing. So I guess you guys didn't really take a break, but we're talking about four or five hours later. The sun went down in Kona, Hawaii. The sun has left us, and it's on the way to the other side of the world, and we're going to be back at it tomorrow. But, man, what a day it was. It was a great day. I'm telling you, it was, the water was beautiful. You know, we had Captain Trevor taking uh, care of us, Trevor Child. And if you guys ever want to go fishing, uh, I'm going to have to get that phone number for you guys. The so. Maverick. The Maverick. It was an unbelievable boat, a Bircham. And, uh, you know, when you come to Kona, Hawaii, and you go down on the docks, it's just absolutely extraordinary. I mean, you see the... You see the colors of the sunset are just magical in Hawaii. You, you're there, and you, uh, there's lots of choices and options um, on the types of fishing you're going to want to do. And this is definitely the biggest um, you know, place on planet Earth for giant, giant, giant marlin. Um, you know, um, last year, I think there were eight over 1,000 pounds caught, and, um, you know, typical four to six, but there's lots and lots of billfish out there. Oh, there's so many. You know, there's all different kinds. There's black marlin, marlin there's blue marlin, there's ahi tuna, yellowfin tuna. There's mai mais, who guys on the mainland might call them dorados. Ono, which is another word, is wahoo. Fastest fish in the ocean. There's so many good things. You like would a, not want to be a piece of bait in Kona, Kona Hawaii. <laughs> you don't want to be swimming in the water, man. No, There's big old tiger no, sharks no. out there. Super aggressive. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so if anybody ever wants to go out here, if you're here in Kona, uh, look up Trevor Child. He's on the Maverick. Phone number 808-896-7985. That's 808-896-7985. Or go to www.mavericksportfishingkona.com. Hey, dude, can you believe that he's going to invite us back? I can't believe it. I know. And I bet you if they, if they say they heard it on Doe's Nose, they'll probably give him a discount, too. Uh, that would probably happen. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, because you're in the know. Well, let's get back to the good stuff, dude. You know, we were talking about 
just pretty much all kinds of bows and archery and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah. you know, you have a big background in video and media. You know, I think it started back in the day with your dad. Yeah, I did. My dad, was, my dad was really an amazing man. And uh, he broke 27 world records as cars. His name was on the side of the Blue Flame and the Courage of Australia. And he did the uh, world fastest jammer cycle, two-wheel piston-driven thing, Formula 1, Formula 5000s, and then got into video. Like, uh -huh. literally picked up our family, moved it to a little town of Tillamook, Oregon, where they invented all types of video electronics. And, um, you know, he died with a whole bunch of patents and um, over 8,000 editorials and invented everything from, like, full-motion colored video phones that I got to install in Kenny Payne, Camp David, OEB, exactly the White House building for the President of the United States. Wow. And so we were some of the very first people to ever be loading video into a hard drive with our own proprietary algorithms and run LinkedIn coding. Mm -hmm. And so as a very young kid, I literally hung out with people who invented the video industry. Guys right. like, you know, Bruce Blair, who invented the very first A to D converter. I know Bruce Brown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Endless summer surf movie. And like George Pyers, the guy who invented chroma keyer and the very first A to B switcher, you uh -huh. know, like, I mean, all television was live up until the time that Mike Talent built the time-based corrector. And mm. so I found a real love of television very early on in my career. And my dad was always really, um, he was always really patient with me. He always took time. He always, uh, you know, any, any questions I might have had to answer. And he treated me like I was an adult. And around the engineers, I wasn't just a snot-nosed boss's son, but somebody who actually put in my time and my work, and it paid off, you know? Sure. And then for years later, they were really irritated at me because they really wanted me to work on the engineering side. But I always had a love for the creation of, of the content. And so... We, uh, we ended up building what became the largest video facility in San Diego. I ended up designing and building my own semi-video trucks. I directed everything from, um, you know, the John Glenn Space Shuttle mission, worked on the X Games, um, did all the kickboxing for Fox, and did a lot of national regional programming. Got to work on a bunch of features and big commercials. And San Diego is kind of an epicenter of some major technology stuff. So it was just so different. It was so different over the course of time you know, um, to see everything evolve. Because I really do believe, I may not have lived it through the greatest race car history in time, but I did live during the greatest video history in time. We mm -hmm. watched everything happen. I mean, way back from the time that the VCR, there was no rental houses and it was a Betamax, to VHS, to Super VHS, to Super Beta, to Betachem SP, um, the old three-quarter inch kind of stuff, the Umatic. I actually wound my very first two-inch machine. I watched the very first hybrid systems come into play. So it's just, it's an amazing technology to watch the immersion. And, you know, we used to laugh and say, television never belongs in a computer. And today, everybody that's editing all over the world and the tools that we have available to us are overwhelming. And Absolutely. Even just like, you know, one of my sponsors is GoPro. Yeah. Oh, and man. And GoPro's Crazy. like one of the greatest inventions that's came out. It is, man. And you it know, changed the world. It has changed the world. These great little cameras that now everybody can put on their head. They can put on their bow. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's people just immerse yeah. themselves. You know, the amount of selfies that are happening all over the world with, you know, and now today and everybody wanted to take their sports and, and become their own personality. And GoPro has definitely been at the forefront in the technology base and the decisions that they made. And so I'm just very, very impressed with what they've been able to do. And obviously we've had them on our productions and, and right. everybody that I know owns one. And an average guy can actually be doing some really good 4K video nowadays. Exactly. Exactly. And so if you guys want to know more about GoPro, go to www.gopro.com. And or you can find them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, yeah, all those social really media. cool. But yeah, GoPro has definitely changed the, the bomb, thing. Bud. Yeah, the bomb. I had to throw that in there because of what we're talking about, and they're one of the sponsors. So yeah, 
But um, now let me t- let me ask you how. Um, okay, so you got this all going with your dad. Yep. And you learned all this stuff from your dad. Is this how you were able to bring this into your own life? Yeah, I think what the the, the technology side, you know, it's like you could graduate with a four-year degree in any kind of a television environment for engineering. And, and by the time I was, I think, 14 years old, I could draw a composite video waveform, describe all its frequencies and how it worked. I could read mm-hmm. schematics and anything that pretty much worked around that because I had a true interest in it. And then from that, you know, then I became like a, like a smart kid. My friends used to call me like Jimmy Neutron. I mm-hmm. could just run around and wire I almost anything. And so that just, um, that started from like, hey, give him a try. He can always solve the stuff. And so half the time, you know, Dozer, to be honest with you, I didn't have any rent money. I didn't know what I was doing. Sure. I, I would go out and buy a piece of equipment that, um, you know, was used. It may have worked and then raised my hand and said, I will. And I'd stay up all night long and learn how to use it. I wasn't intimidated by anything. And that, that showing up has changed my life. You know, I can't tell you how many decisions or directions have changed throughout the course of my life because I did show up. And it may not have been a related directly to where I was going, but um, if you if you have your head down and you pay attention, good things happen. Right, and so now that's enabled you to do all your own shows. You do them yourself. Yeah, it's funny. Um, the Outdoor Channel uh, years ago um, was the very first uh, outdoor programming of it of any kind that actually wanted to simulcast an HD and SD. And as a video engineer, being right up the road from Temecula, California, when they originated, they asked me to start working on projects and talk to them about HD and the delivery. And no one at that time had even had HD. And mm-hmm. the interesting thing is there were 11 proposed systems for HD and back in the day for the 185 aspect ratio um, we wanted it to match to film so when the very first HD came out they were all 1035 they weren't 1080 right they were to match the film aspect ratio and so there were a lot of money and I, I had been buying into HD very early on because we were shooting everything in 35 millimeter film like you shoot motion pictures with. We were spending all the money to transfer and buy the film. It was very expensive, but the pictures sold the story. Mm-hmm. And I was addicted to it. I mean, I could retire three times for what I spent in film in those days, you know, working on all of the different yeah. projects, but with the, with the hope that the HD would solve it. But it changed everything. So the, after the Outdoor Channel said, hey, Jim, uh, would you, uh, after you're done engineering and all this stuff and talking to us about it, would you start looking at building some outdoor television programming? So I went out for a year and I hired some of my people that I really uh, admired, people that I had read about. And after I spent a year with them and realizing that I was just this ballistic bow hunter because bow hunting was my number one thing in my life. Nothing else could ever take the place of that. Right. I really started to... Uh, pay attention. And then after that, um, I started, uh, you know, shooting two shows. I went around and filmed everybody. And then I thought to myself, you know what, I can shoot a bow and they don't, they don't see, they don't see what I see. They don't, they don't like, everybody has an opinion, you know, like where you grew up and what's important to you in Hawaii and the things that are part of your culture. My Western United States of where I grew up, I feel very privileged to have been able to be with those guys, have real hunting parties, share those stories, share those memories, share those adventures and how hard it was. And I wanted to bring that to the screen. And so um, I never thought I would host anything. Mm-hmm. But to realize, I look back now, 12 years later, and my number one show I've had, you know, I've had lots of them, but the number one show, Western Extreme, has been on the air for 12 years. And it, on and off, it's been rated number one out of 400 and some programs. So it's yeah, been lucky. It, it was pretty funny because, you know, I was always a big fan of your show. And I was like, look at this guy. He's a badass hunter. I think the first one of the first episodes I saw you up in Saskatchewan shooting uh, some mule deer and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this guy's badass. And then one day I happened to run into you. I didn't, I didn't really recognize you right off the bat, 
but we were in Mola, I think Maui. Yeah, I think we were in Maui Airport. I was coming back from a hunt. You saw me with my bow, uh, still dressed in camo, and coolers full of meat because I just shot a whole bunch of deer, brought it home to the family. And you're like, hey, what are you doing? Where are you coming from? And I'm sitting there going, man, I totally recognize this guy. And then we just, we hit it off right from there. And we became friends. You went hunting. I think I got more deer than you. On your than your trip on yeah yeah but that happens right. that happens to me a lot <laughs> everybody outshoots me no I'm just no, kidding no, you, dude, you're like my you, hero dude no you're my hero you're I, my hero it's funny because um you know you would just have one of those contagious personalities of everybody around you you know I call him the mayor in Kona because everybody <laughs> knows Dozer Dozer knows but you know what Dozer knows means it means that Dozer knows everybody in Kona Hawaii yeah. for sure well we know you right now and and you've man you're an awesome person and the uh you know, one of the things I'm intrigued, well, before we get to that, um, you've got quite a few shows, you know, b- besides Western Extreme. Yeah. In fact, one of the coolest projects I ever got to work on with the Massey family, uh, you know, Tom Massey and Kia Massey, mm-hmm. um, they both have been hosting a show. That, probably the very first original show that was ever on Outdoor Channel was called Gold Fever. Mm. And uh, it was a gold prospecting show about him and his daughter who have traveled the world in mm-hmm. search of gold. An average person can go and find gold. And him as a, as a hobbyist and a, a, a geologist kind of like, you know, knowing everything about where to find it and where to go look for it and how to, how to prospect it. And so that show had been on the air for a long time. And last year, um, the Outdoor Channel came to me and they said, hey, Jim, this is the Massey family. They're super important. They used to own Outdoor Channel. And once they got bought out, they were going to continue the show. And so they said, we want to make it look like a Discovery Channel show. We want to give this whole show a facelift. We want to, we want to make it look like something that um, you know, anybody could watch mm-hmm. and bring the quality up. And so we did that. We were able to do it. We, it was, it's quite exciting. Um, I got to go everywhere from like uh, into Alaska, into the, the cabin and the underneath the ice where the rivers wow. flow to underwater Using up dredges in, and oh and well, dredges and all over like Nome, Alaska, all in the mine shafts. Um, we literally, <clears throat> we literally traveled all over the place. I'm going to say that over again to pick it up. We literally traveled all over the place um, to be able to shoot the show, and then by the end of it, it had real stick. It was a really good show, and I was super proud of it. And I shot on it, you yeah. know? so that was cool. And then Did we you- had choose your weapon. Yep, she's you probably watch that. Yeah, so I've been doing a lot of teaching on long range, and I was using cameras upwards of sixty thousand frames a second that actually captured the you know bullets and projectile them spinning out of the front of the gun. You were, the, you were one of the first ones to slow that down, so we yeah, could see fact, that bullet coming out of the gun. It's funny because the very first cameras that were ever showed in high speed, I used for. Um, you know, black and white and worked out my own algorithm and mathematical equation to be able to blow them and change the square to rectangle pixels so that I could show really high quality stuff on the air. Um, and so I was proud of that. It, a lot of people for the first time saw a bow go off, you know? Yeah. And um, everybody's like, no way. That is so rad. That is so cool. You could see the the amount of flex and distortion and how the arrow apexes. Well, I've, I've noticed that, you know, while we've been shooting over the last week, you know, yeah. your cameraman's been doing a lot of slow-mo shots. Yeah. And we had a barbecue yesterday with a bunch of the boys, all the local boys here on the Big Island. Yep. And he, w- he would just sit there and film everybody and then show it back to him. And it's amazing how you can watch yourself pull back and watch that arrow go in such slow speed because normally you don't see that arrow. 
Yeah. That thing's flying so friggin' fast, 300-something yeah. feet per second. You bet. And it's pretty It's pretty amazing um, when you start slowing it down. And then you look at the engineering tool that that has been in the industry and allowing us to better ourselves. I've often felt like if you take any industry, no matter what it is, and you start to pay attention mm-hmm. um, and people start caring, and when there's good competition and there's enough money involved in it, then you start to see really good products come out. That competition, without that, there's not growth. Mm-hmm. And the archery industry has been so competitive. It's like like the gun industry, pretty much the same. I mean, I could go back 40 years. I'm still pulling the same trigger mm-hmm. on, a, on a Remington 700. But in the archery industry, it advances at such a rate, and everybody's looking for the new technology. Everybody's waiting for that next thing. And again, it's a mechanical device. It only moves so fast. It's super hard to look at the engineering and keep away from the patents and build something innovative. And that's why my hat's off to all the bow companies in the industry, but especially, in my opinion, you know, my own, uh, drinking my own Kool-Aid Bowtech. Right. Um, have you worked on any other TV shows? Yeah, we did. Um, one of the other ones that I did, I had Adventures Abroad that was the All-Africa oh, show yeah, that ran for really long. That. Then I had yeah. Sportsman Afield, and then I had The Hunt. And uh, what am I forgetting? So what are we going to name oh my, my show? <laughs> Have you came up with a name yet? How about Doe's Nose? That's an original idea. I want to be trademarked for that. I want. I need royalty checks, Doe's. <laughs> but you're not the one that came up with that. No, I need... I, right now, I just Kayla said it. came up with Yeah, that but one. how do you know that? How do you because, know it? Did she say it on camera? Did she say it right now on, on podcast well, or no? Well, Sal is a guy. Oh. He's the host of the, like, X Games and Red Bull TV. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he's a guy. And he's big, too. He'll kick your ass. Oh, wow. But uh, I don't want to take any credit from him, then. No, 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 no. I just threw it around on Facebook and stuff. I'm like, hey, people, look, I'm looking for a name for a new show. And everybody started giving me ideas. And Sal was like, I like Doe's Nose. So, and we kind of did a big vote on it. And that that's how it came that's about. That's it. Yeah. Stuck forever. You're stuck, stuck forever. with it. Yeah. It's like a country singer having to pick a song and sing it for the next 30 years. You're stuck with it, bro. It's stuck with you. I know. How did that happen? <laughs> oh, my God. How do I get rid I of know, you? I know, I know, I know. My scenes are getting can. longer and longer and longer here in Hawaii yeah, every year. I know. And now we're just, uh, yeah, we're having fun. But now we're doing podcasts. Yep. TV show. It's going to be live next. Yep. Toes Nose TV. Yep. And yep. I think I just came out with a yesterday while we were shooting, I had my hair in a, in a man bun. So I came out with a Did new archery line. Did you say hair in a man bun? Yes. Oh, okay. I came out with a new archery line. It's called Man Bun Archery. Man Bun Archery. <laughs> so I'm going to not up. invest in that if you don't mind. <laughs> Please don't. I'm not going to do it. Especially because you got the bald spot right there. Yeah, I know. But it's hey, gone. look, I, what everybody wants to hear right now, they want to hear some freaking stories from you. Okay, you've been on some of the most amazing hunts. You tell me stories like this last year. You almost got killed by a grizzly bear. Yeah, that was a that was a different deal. Um, uh, I was on Kodiak Island, Alaska, and this has been a trip that I've been wanting to go on for a it's really. The one you invited me, the right? Hunt, I invited right? you, and it was just it was an extraordinary trip because you know I've been by, invited on that trip like six or seven times. People wanted to do it out of the lodge. They wanted to do it on the north side, and a lot of that water is very volatile that time of the year. And as the snow starts to drop, those deer come out of the high country and they hit the beach. And so sometimes you can see hundreds and hundreds of deer lining the beach, depending on the weather and what time of year it is. But again, you can be socked into Alaska. Those of you that have been in and out of a float plane, or you've known, um, you know, some of the even the commercial airlines can be you know closed down for a week at a time at wow. times. And so Alaska is just the truly the wild frontier. It's nothing to mess with. And mm-hmm. so you have to have the right crew. But my goal was to go on the south end of the island. 
And, um, and so what I did was I went out and found a, a, a good friend of mine and he, uh, he had set it all up and we went on a boat that actually was out of San Diego that I had tuna fished in just years ago called Qualifier 105. And they mm. had moved it and done some, some work with it. And, um, this is not a transporter. There's no guides or anybody on the boat. And so I was able to take my boys and, and, uh, um, some family and I did, I did a bunch of like really close personal friends. It was just going to be a big friend trip. So there ended up being nine of us. We killed like nine or 10 of us. We killed 28 bucks in five Holy days. Moly. We absolutely laid them over, bro. We had some predators on the boat, guys that knew how to shoot. And my goal was to try to beat everybody with a, with a bow and arrow. Uh-huh. And I was in the lead for a little while, but, the but, uh, my, uh, my son, Jeff actually took the, took the prize on that one and shot nice. just one of the biggest deer ever shot on Kodiak Island with a firearm. Wow. And it was, it was well, really extraordinary. runs in the family. And the, and the biggest part about it is, you know, have to realize that the brown bear is like the largest carnivore and on Kodiak Island, they're known as the largest one. So this now isn't a grizzly bear. Okay. What's bear. the difference between a grizzly and a brown? Well, it's a peninsula and it really does determine the line, but obviously there are some of the largest. I mean, people would claim that Kodiak Island has the largest brown bears in the world. That are roaming around. Because I and, see a brown uh, bear, and it looks like a friggin' grizzly bear to me. Yeah. I can't tell the difference. Yeah, they're very similar. They look, they can be all different types of colors, but the size will definitely tell you who's who. And right? the brown is bigger than the grizzly. Yeah, the brown is definitely bigger than the grizzly bear. And there are some opening up things all over Alaska, but you have to be a master guide in order to hunt them. And so... Anyway, we had been out. It was our second day, mm-hmm. and I had a cameraman um, named Ryan Digitano who um, digs. You know you know yeah. him. We brought him last year. Yeah. And uh, he's a great friend of mine, and he works super, super hard. But we went out, and um, uh, we had shot this buck with my, with my bow. Mm-hmm. And the sun was shining, and we were in this remote bay. And you have to realize, like, you only have – you have to hump it, bro. You have to, like – you have to be on the beach. The tide comes up and down. You could be stuck there all night long. The skiff gets a little bit of surf. So they can't pick you up everywhere, and you got to hump back to the spot. Now, you have to realize the deer, by the time it's boned out, is 85 pounds. So I just got done with the deer. And for precaution's sake, right, because I was hunting with a bow and arrow, I had just put a, a firearm – on Diggs' pack frame, right, mm-hmm. with his camera gear. And so I didn't really think anything of it. I had just got done uh, recording the deer, put it on my back, and had, you know, had a hefty pack on it. If you ever watched, walked in the marsh there, it's, I mean, it's difficult. And there's rivers everywhere. It's, like, really thick. You know, you have to walk and exert yourself twice as much. Your body temperature goes up and down. And so, you know, you start to sweat, and then you get hot, and then, you know, all of this stuff happens. And you're worried about controlling your body temperature in Alaska and overall. And so I look up, and here comes this brown bear. And, I mean, this is not no joke. I mean, this is a nine-and-a-half-foot legitimate big brown bear, mm-hmm. and he is directly keyed on me. And he's walking. He's probably about 500 yards away. Within a matter of a minute and a half or something, you know, this bear now is, like, under 100. And when he gets to 100 without a shot of a lie, this bear starts running directly at me and you can watch it on camera dude and my cameraman digs just completely freaks out and i had told him you know when i hunted in in zimbabwe with elephants and 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 lions and you know we've done we've we've hunted everywhere don't run you can't run like you have to get to the point where you control your adrenaline don't even think about it just figure out how to control the situation so when i turned around and digs had ran from me up the hill i realized (laughs) that 100 yards with a dead run that there was no way i was going to make it to the fire and he had the gun on his back he had the gun on his back. There's no way I'm going to, like, you know, take it out, get it loaded, and point it at this brown bear to stop the threat. So I also realized that 
I I never want to ever break a game violation. It's something that's super important to me. Sure. I feel like I can't stand in front of anybody and be the man that I truly want to be without that. And so um, I didn't have a tag. I wasn't a master guide. The mm-hmm. season wasn't open. And even though I had a real threat coming at me, and you have to make a decision in a moment, I really realized that I could have shot this bear probably legally and everything would have been fine. But the game and fish department would have came. Done and an investigation. They would have done an investigation, like a murder investigation kind of thing on sure. a bear. And then it might have even canceled everybody else's trip, you mm-hmm. know. And so I know this sounds weird, but it, I went, it flashed through my mind in 2.3 microseconds. So I didn't even put a, an arrow in my bow. I literally did not even protect myself. I stood there at under 30 yards and had this bear coming at me at a dead run. And I put my bow over my head and I started yelling at him as hard and as fast as I possibly could Uh to get him to stop. And Diggs, again, was running, you know, away from me and (laughs) captured, you know, the bear running at me twice. And then one of the disgruntled Well, it works out out a little bit better for you because you're six foot six. The bear's nine foot eight. Yep, at least At least add a bow in there with your arms up in the air. And me a little bit elevated from him, right, which I put myself. Just a little bigger. Right, you want to get the right win. You want to pay attention when that deer is on the ground so that you're out in the open so that you can physically see. The, our mistake was that we didn't have that firearm out, you uh-huh. know, but we thought we could see far enough, you know. And then Diggs just flat got scared. So then I went up there, and after giving him a, you know, a, re- <laughs> a Riemann kind of on him running from well, me. Well, before we get to the Riemann, how'd you get out of that situation? Well, I, just literally put my, yards. I literally put my bow over my head and I started yelling at him so hard and so loud that he looked at me and said, that looks like Burnworth from the Outdoor Channel and he's <laughs> killed my cousins before. I'm out of here. <laughs> and so we got him to stop. And then what's funny is, is this bear ran right past the gut pile. He ran right past the rib cage and he ran past a piece of hide that didn't have much meat on it. And so after I yelled at him, the, deer, beers, the bear just little turned around and started smelling. And then he just goes over and he grabs that piece of hide. Uh-huh. It was really lightweight. And he ran it off about another 30 yards. So the bear was prob- probably about 65 to 70 yards from me. And so I told Ryan to roll so we could grab some footage of this bear that had just, this attack that had just almost with a, happened. With a real quick reaming in the same time. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I was just draw- trying to be on camera as best I could. And the bear was directly behind me. The bear was like directly behind me, and as I was paying attention, I uh, I didn't notice this, but Ryan had bought a pepper can spray <laughs> from the local Alaska sporting goods store. Sure. Now I didn't even know he had one, right? Well, he had this thing out, and he had already pulled the plug on it, and he had it underneath the camera lens that he was trying to to navigate the can and the lens at the same time. Okay. And so as we started to pay attention to this, um, I didn't even see the can. And all of a sudden, that bear goes, there's no meat on this hide. And he wants to come back for second vittles. Uh-huh. So, you know, before he was just keyed with this meat on my back with this buck and right at me. So now the bear starts to come again. And all I see, the very last thing I remember seeing, is Ryan's eyes getting big around as saucers. <laughs> and then he, he just completely squirts me and it's one of those pepper can sprays that sprays like 25 (laughs) yards across at you i mean this is like a very powerful spray so i get shot blasted 
like right in the middle of my chest, like maybe six inches underneath my nose. And within two and point it's high pressure. Right. Oh yeah. yeah, dude. Like it was bad. Two point three microseconds, my head is blown up. I don't see. There is no water. I can't breathe. There's snot literally coming out of my nose all the way to the ground instantly. <laughs> and all of a sudden all I can think about is is that Ryan's not gonna save us. He's already proved that. Right. And this bear's directly behind me and he's coming again, but I can't physically see him. <laughs> so I start yelling and hollering a little bit to try to wear him off while I can't see, try to clear my eyes good enough, and I instantly got a gigantic headache, and um, it was burning severely. Sure. I mean, severely. And so then I just said, well, we got to just get out of here. And, uh, you know, at times like that, you, you just got to, if you're going to be dumb, you got to be tough. Yeah. I always say that, right? If you get into your head that, woe is me, I'm going to die, it won't work, I can't do it. The woods are not forgiving. These are real places and real spaces. Like, you can't ever give up. You've got to be mentally tough in order to go on these adventures and be able to pull through. And this is one of those times where I can't focus on being pepper sprayed. I can't focus on the fact that this bear is directly in front of me. I need to really focus on how I'm going to make everybody safe and get home. And so... After I cleared my eyes, grabbed the pack, and took off as fast as I could, try to build distance, and luckily he found that rib cage and it slowed him down. And the best part about it is, and I think we can almost say anything, is this PG? Uh, no, it's R. It's R. Okay. Zach. So I can say a little bit. So anyway, so he Just was get running. Get the fuck you want, dude. Yeah. So Ryan, <laughs> Ryan decides that he's going to run to the beach as fast as he can to get ahead of me with you know my heavy pack on my back and stuff. So he beats me by a couple three hundred yards. And when I get there, he's totally distraught, and he's, like, grabbing his crotch. And he's like, oh, my gosh, dude, don't take a piss. Don't take a piss, dude. Some of that pepper spray had actually got on his hands, and he, when he took a piss, it started to burn him. And it was burning him so bad that he, uh, he almost jumped in the water to try to, to rectify himself. And um, the funny part about it is I was clearing my eyes out of there. I thought, man, he needs way more payback than that. Way more payback way than more, a burnt Way dick. more. Way more. Could have lost my life on that day. Hell yeah. You know? No joke. Okay, so what about what's your favorite elk hunt you've ever done? Man, I, uh, I have to say... Because um, you know, I, I know when I'm... Every hunt I've ever done... Every animal that I've ever brought home, I can tell you exactly the story on that animal. Isn't that amazing? Like, you have something on the wall, and it means more than just the animal. A lot of people look at it like, oh, it's a dead animal. No, it's a story. It's a moment it's in time. A, it's a story, Spending and time. It's, it's another way of remembering that animal. Yeah. You know, I got to bring and them And honoring them, because and everybody honoring, that walks in absolutely. your home gets to see them up close, and we're the ones that pay to play. We're the ones that get to spend that time with that animal. Uh -huh. We're the ones that love it more than anybody else. Everybody's like, you want to kill them? So what do you mean love you love them? them? We love them. I'm an animal lover. Right. I am too. Big Definitely. time. 100%. Yeah. Um, I love to eat them too. Yeah, no, no doubt. No <laughs> doubt. It's the most healthy way. I think a lot of people are starting to look at venison as one of the major food groups. It's super healthy, low in fat content, and it's generic. I mean, you know, yeah, organic. 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 Absolutely. Generic, organic. Okay, so tell us about your best elk hunt. Well, God did not get it wrong when he invented an elk, oh, for sure. One I of mean, my it's, favorite it's animals. The one of the one of the all-times. I mean, it's the greatest animal, in my opinion. I love calling him and bugling him. You know, I'd have to say it was the very first elk hunt I've ever been on. Really? You know? Um it kind of combined number one year, my first year at 12 years old, and my number two year at 13 years old, um, hunting an elk. So my dad, you know, I got a firearm, and I always wanted one of those Marlin 30-30s, 30, you know. Mm -hmm. And it, he ended up getting me a Marlin 
375 and he told me I had to be able to hold it out, lift it out and be strong enough to hold it. It was very difficult with one arm. And I finally got that lever action and put a little four power scope on it. It kicked like a mule. And so very opening day, very first day I ever get to elk hunt, my dad um, is with me and he, um, he sees a bunch of elk up on the hill. So he says, hey, Jimmy, your mom will kill me, but I want you to sit right by this tree. I don't want you to move anywhere. I just sit right here. Don't go anywhere. No matter what happens, don't move. I'm like, okay. So my dad goes wandering up the hill. He does this huge circle, and all those elk come running back down right in front of me. And so I lifted the gun, and when I saw the first set of horns, I pulled the trigger. And my dad came running down the hill, and he's like, what, what, what? And uh, he goes, who shot? Who shot? I said, I did. He goes, what are you doing shooting? I'm like, I shot that, that bull elk right there. And there laid a five-point bull on the ground. And God love my dad. You know, he lived his entire life and never shot an elk. Not even wow. one, bro. It was so difficult until I'm like, and I think it was just like my luck of grace, you know? Yeah. And that pat on the back that you get and the pride and the excitement and all of the things. My heroes weren't Superman or a video game or a superhero you see on TV. Yeah. My heroes were the hunting parties that I got to hang out with. My heroes were the hunters that spent time in the field that I loved who they were, mm-hmm. what they were doing. It was wholesome. It was good. It was all about having connection and going back up to the same hill and looking off on the same rock. Yeah. And then the second year came along that, that when I turned 12, my dad bought me my first bow and I didn't even know what side of the string to look on. <laughs> and him and my uncle had bought bows at the same time. And so I was at school and they woke up early in the morning and they found right above a little town called Hebo, um, they had found these elk that were up on the hill, and they went up there, and they had both missed a bull. There were, like, three spikes in this little herd, and they had, they had both missed them. And I told them, oh, my gosh, I can shoot better than you guys. Please, Dad, please let me go hunting with me. Please, come on, bro. Like, just let me skip school and go hunting with you. And he's like, man, Jimmy, school's super important, bro. You're going to have your opportunity. It'll come. But he's like, I, I really can't take you out of school. And then he woke me up. You know, about an hour after I went to bed that night and said, you're going to go in the morning. And then I couldn't sleep all night long waiting for the opportunity. (laughs) And so there we were opening, you know, the next morning, the sun's rising and they put me in the middle. My uncle on my left hand side, my dad on my right. And we all on top of that little ridge where they saw him the, the night before. And I just started to peek over and got over this little, you know, sal owl bush with the with a piece of timber that was cut. And I looked down and sure enough, here comes this spike that's like stands up out of his bed. And uh, I drew the bow, and I can't even tell you where the pin was. And um, I shot him about five and a half, six inches back further than I wanted to uh-huh. without even knowing anything. 13 years old, and now I've got my second bull elk without my uncle or my dad ever taking an elk. And so it was a uh-huh. call it luck. Yeah. But, and that's yeah. where the addiction started. Yeah. I mean, once you spend time with them, you just fall in love with them. I mean, what else? Everybody says an elk is like a turkey. No, it is not. It does not have horns. Mm-hmm. Everybody talks about how smart a turkey is. That is the biggest joke I've ever heard. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. It, one of the, I'm sorry. I know there's a lot of turkey hunters over on the mainland. And, I know. We and, love everybody. And, and we I love, get it. We love it's everybody. Spring time. It's, it's springtime. I you get know, it. And, and one of the things about the mainland is, you know, they're limited to certain times that they can hunt. We're here yeah. on the Big Island in Hawaii. We can hunt 365 days a year. Yeah. And so 
people are super excited when they get to see those. It's turkey time. It's another, just yeah, another, another season, season for bet. them. And get the to fact hunt. that you can call and you can perfect your skills and they're small and they're smart. And I get it. It's just that growing up in the Western United States, they don't have no horns on it. Yeah. And it's got all horns on it before I get excited and, about and it. And when the turkeys come up to your golf cart here and try and eat the snacks out of your cart, <laughs> I'm just like, that's when they're going to get shot. <laughs> you know? Well, it's some good, it's some good eating, right? <coughs> yeah. Spend some time outside and that's what it's all about. What about mule deer? What's your what was oh, your man. favorite mule deer hunt? Oh man, um, I'm telling stories. Good thing this is R rated. Um, I was up in. I I would have to say uh, oh, I got a different one. I was with a really good friend, Edward Sanchez. We were kids, and we'd you know we'd grab the truck and hardly had money for our tags, you know, let alone gas money. And uh-huh. we ran on the other side of the state, and I found this four by four buck that was bedded down. And I told myself, this is the first time I'm really going to be patient. This is the first time I'm going to make the perfect stock. Uh, the first time I'm going to take all the adrenaline out of it. And I'm going to follow a sequence and move through. I was 16 years old. Okay. And I already shot some mule deer bucks, but nothing like, nothing like this one. And yeah. it was a four by four, and it was bedded on this little berm in this grass. And so I had, I had snuck on him, and I got to like 30 yards, and he was still bedded there without me seeing him. You know, I had my face all camoed up. I had a Hoyt bow back mm-hmm. in the day. I was a big PSE fan back then, too. And um, we finally got to in there and then I thought though I felt the wind start to switch but the buck still stayed in his bed and I thought I can't stay here for long I have to back back out do a big circle and now I'm just approaching you know what it's like you know what it's like those like you get really really close right oh, yeah. and then your adrenaline starts to come up and then as you get closer you start to speed up and then you get closer you start to like you start feeling adrenaline in your ears and then oh, you yeah. start shaking right and so now I don't even know if this buck's there because you're the moment of truth. Like he's going to see me, I'm going to see him, or I'm going to get a shot, right? Right. So all of a sudden I lift up where I think this buck is, and he's so close that he's under four yards from me. Wow. And he's so close that I can't even see his vitals through the peep sight. So I have to like get on him, look and then I the look shot. over the bowstring on the right-hand side and go, I should shoot him right there, and then got back into him and under four yards shot that mule deer buck. And it was the first time that I felt stealthy. You know, I mean, I'm six foot five, six foot six, bro. Yeah. Like, when you're as tall as I am, you're not stealthy at anything. <laughs> not even close. No, dude. no. It's like Larry Bird right. going out Larry there. Larry Bird out there hunting. <laughs> That's that had to be amazing, dude. It's it was such an amazing. Feeling. It was. You know, those are stories you remember for the rest of your life. You know, it shapes who you are. Yeah. And then to get to share that with others, you know, that's what hunting is about. I think that all of us hunters nowadays, we need we need to know two things, that we're responsible for every single arrow that we shoot, mm-hmm. that the resource isn't limited. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not unlimited. We need to really pay attention to what we're doing and be ethical. It's You know, in many, many states, we can just farm an arrow, you know, uh, cut one, and then, you know, just go out the next day and go hunt another one no one was watching. And I think that we all need to be raised with ethics and, mm-hmm. and start to look at that and be more responsible and spend more time behind the bow and perfect your knowledge and your skill set and spend time practicing. And it'll exactly. be more rewarding and you'll love the sport even more, you yeah. know. And, and get your family involved. Yeah. You know, I know you, you know, you're a family man. You've, you've got a beautiful wife and five children. Yeah. All of them are into archery as well. Yep. Everybody's been shooting since they were small children. And they've sure. all became part of this business that you've created. Yep. And uh, you take them out on hunts. 
Yep, especially my boys. My boys, if they've gotten older, they're definitely predators, and they grew up in our environment. And, um, you know, we have a 26-yard indoor archery range in our house, and we've been able to teach and help a lot of kids over the course of time. I think that anybody who's a sportsman nowadays, we look at some of the kids that are, we're around, and we say they spend too much time on their their cell phones. We say they spend too much time indoors or they spend too much time. The whole social side of our community is really being lost a lot. You know, we're communicating through words that are on a screen rather than actual communication side, side by side, person to person. And so it's easy for us to write kids off like that. You know, um, I think that we all just, we can change their lives by saying, you know, I can't tell you, I used to have a project called project give back. And all it was is like a grab a daisy, you know, a, uh, um, you know, a BB gun uh-huh. and I go out and throw some cans up and I would spend two hours and a lot of them were little girls. Hmm. A lot of them were little kids and it was their very first exposure to firearms. Mm-hmm. And you have to realize some of those girls or some of those kids that I had worked with may never become hunters, mm-hmm. but because they got taught the responsibility of a firearm, because they got taught, um, the fun and the, and the love that we have for them, not as shooting an animal, but as just a marksman, mm-hmm. Um, those are our future voters. Those are the people that determine whether our, our sport is around forever. I remember one of the last addresses that, that Charlton Heston said um, that I'll never forget. It's burned in my brain. He said, if we, if we focus on anti-gun legislation, but we ignore anti-gun generation, if we spend all of our time legislating and none of our time mentoring, in one generation we will have failed. Wow. That's a very, very powerful word that describes our future of what we love and the Second Amendment. And we have people that threaten that every single day. Oh, yeah. And it just absolutely infuriates me. And I don't want to be judged. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be, have anybody judge who I am or what I do. If it's ethical and legal, I don't care if you do it with a, a spitwad or a slingshot or a blowgun or whether you're doing it with a spear mm-hmm. or a longbow or a crossbow or a, a, you know, a, a compound or a firearm. Yeah. If you're loving the outdoors, you have a deer tag. Because I really believe that the last time we heard something negative about our sport, it didn't come from a vegan or a vegetarian. I don't even know those two people. Right. It came from one sportsman complaining to another sportsman on how he or she spent their time afield. Quit fighting. Start loving. Everybody has a deer tag. You want to do it like you want to do it. I want to do it like I want to do it. You're my brother. You're mm-hmm. brother in blood. Mm-hmm. Let's celebrate in that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when a vegan comes up to you, what do you say? You know, I spent a lot of time because I find a, a lot of person. Right. I haven't had anybody that's like super aggressive, but I've had people that like literally wouldn't talk to me, but they don't understand the conservation. You know, I think we all have to be humble and kind, you know, it's through education because it's an emotional thing, right? Uh-huh. It's like when you meet a lady and she's really in love with koala bears mm-hmm. or she's really in love with an elephant or she's really in love with, and we've named them all, you know, we've got, we've got Simba the lion, you know, yeah, exactly. or, you know, we've, we've, we've named these animals, their stories with them. And so we look at them differently, you know, like Jeffrey, the giraffe, you Winnie know, the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh. So we have all of these like symbols that we've characterized these animals. And what people don't realize is we love them as much as they do, yeah. but we're the people that pay to protect them. Yeah. We're the people that pay to make sure there's conservation and real biology on the ground. And in every sense of the word, no matter where you go around the world, Game conservation is alive and well. Now, is there some poaching? Yeah, like white rhinos in Africa. Mm-hmm. Absolutely horrible. Horrible. Lots of things happening with them. Now, what do you think? Should, do you think they should legalize the, you know, 
the the horn because right now the world's pretty much banning hey the sale of the African horn. I know that they can go in there and safely cut the horn off the rhino and sell it that way without killing the animal. Is that true? Have you heard that? You know, there's lots of things. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in Africa, uh, 35 to 45 days for the last, like, 11 years. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time with some biologists, and we've had lots of conversations on them. And there's one particular friend of mine who is a game biologist that has worked exclusively on nothing but rhino horns. And they talk about the government being involved, where there's millions and millions of dollars worth of horns that are already you know, locked up, and they've actually put radio transmitters in them and GPS chips and then track them and realize that when the government went on strike, there was no more rhino killing because every one of them have to be registered. So one of the things that everybody needs to hear loud and clear, you know, you can go to Highfield Taxidermy over in Africa, and I can take you into, um, it's the world's largest taxidermist. It's 10 volumetric tons of taxidermy get sent to the United States every single month. And it's quite impressive. And you might see three or 5,000 Impala that are all in one room that have been shot by sportsmen. And without a hunter putting value on them, those Impala would not exist. South Africa is the greatest example of hunting conservation in the world. We can learn everything we need to know about hunting from, from South Africa in general. So there are animals that you say are on the endangered species list. They're on CITES. They're on, you know, like a bonte buck, let's say. And in native places, bonte buck are on CITES because they are endangered. But in private herds, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of bonte buck right? Because of the value they had that had been raised and fed and home ranged and took care of. Mm -hmm. And so the rhiners are the same way. Throughout South Africa, there are people that that still today hunt some white rhinos Mm -hmm. um, for different purposes. Now, I could never hunt a rhino. It's not something that I ever desire to do. Now, I have been part of of nine white rhinos that I've darted. Uh And so over the course of time, I've been with a biologist. I've been with the game conservation. I've even been part of the transplant system. So we we moved um, a whole bunch of white rhinos. And you're with the guy Carter from Carter's War. Yeah, Carter... um, he has an amazing uh, story, and he's really well-respected throughout Africa. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's done a lot of really good stuff. He's one of many of the PHs that have the same qualifications as the people that I've hunted with over the course of time. I've not spent any time in the field with him, but he's very well-known, and mm-hmm. he's very well-respected over in South Africa for sure. But the white rhinos and what he's doing for conservation, that isn't an easy story. That isn't easy to tell. My hat's off to them and what they've done. But, um, you know, overall... Um, I believe that the white rhino, you know, like, like me, I got to transport those. I moved those rhinos where they had not been in Indianapolis in over 80 years. And because of the value that a hunter puts on them, those rhinos exist. Mm-hmm. There's thousands of rhinos right now that are in South Africa that are being raised on private farms, gigantic, vast, gargantuan pieces of land that are privately held that are raising and building babies and moving them and they're being bought and sold like cattle. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the existence of that. Can you imagine that if there weren't any South Africans, if hunters weren't involved at some level, there mm-hmm. wouldn't be any of those rhinos. Those rhinos would have already been dead for just the, for, for a horn. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Same and an animal's tiger. worth more than the horn. It's worth more than the meat. Yeah. Right? That's what we have to stop worrying about. Here in North America, all you hear is, what is the number one thing a non-hunter asks you? What are you doing with the meat? What are you doing with the meat? Yeah. That is super important. Yeah. But that, that, that has way more than meat value. Yeah. Way more. Yeah. Right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Just like just like Grandpa, when I told the story earlier, right? Grandpa yeah. run around the thing. They only had meat value. That's all they looked at that doe and that fawn, that buck. But if I paid him three grand, he's saving them. He's saving them all. He's saving them and all. And he's raising them to get bigger. And they're only, like, and the other thing that really bothers me, does, and this is something that's really hard for people to get, a, and it separates sportsmen, too, mm. is the idea of trophy hunting. Yeah. Everybody talks about trophy hunting. Trophy hunting's bad. So I always ask, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to shoot the young does and the fawns, yeah, right, right. To, ke- to keep the herd down? No. Trophy hunting is the single greatest thing that's ever happened to hunting. I'm uh-huh. taking only the mature animals out of the herd to sustain itself that's already done its job. Do you want them to rot on the ground and to die of old age? And, you know, everybody's like, well, only the weak survive. No, that doesn't work like that. Yeah. Not at all. Not ever. Not once. Um, I hate you said that wrong. Pick up. Only the, only the weak die, you know, well, but it's yeah. not true. Only not the only die the, and the strong survive. Yeah, but yeah. That, that stuff's not totally true either, right? Yeah. I mean, the fact is, is that um, the entire herd suffers, and that's why those biologists are working. Um, but again, well, even with the rhinos, you know, let's go back to the rhinos because, yeah. you know, one of the things is, you know, there's legal rhino hunting in Africa. Mm-hmm. Okay, and there's a reason for it because when the male gets a certain age, he actually starts killing all of the other rhinos for the for the females. You know, some of that some of that goes on, and I think that's easy for just people to say, "Yeah, that's happening or not happening." But the point is, is that that animal's worth a lot of money, yeah. right? So if you're a private landowner and you have a bunch of white rhinos, you can't just endlessly. Um, you know, be able to feed them forever and as they populate, you mm-hmm. need to be able to take that upper, older you know, bulls out of the herd, keep breeding them you, you make some money, you can go buy some more you can start, you know, building the herd up and so sure. those are important dollars for the overall subsistence but our goal is not to kill them all our right. goal is to populate them mm-hmm. and hunting is only a tool so we always say sustainable use of wildlife if you can actually have sustainable use of wildlife everything is healthy and every biologist anybody that's in the know anywhere around the world would agree that hunting is a vital part of management absolutely well we've got a lot of hunting to do this week still yeah the next, i'm I in think, we got 10 more days of hunting we're being hooked up at a couple of really cool places our friend jeff lee has got a set up at hokakana ranch for sheep hunting another good friend of mine andy carlson is uh, got a setup over at his place. We're goat hunting over there. I would love for us to get over to Maui if we have the time. You know, the Do a little deer hunt. The axis deer are in full rut right now, and it's just mating season and it's going off. Um, yeah, but yeah, we've got we've got a lot of stuff going on here. We've yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful area. Pretty cool, bro. I mean, to be here in Hawaii, I mean, a lot of people, when they, when they close their eyes and they think about Hawaii, they think about a beach, right? Yeah. Not me, man. I think about horns. Horns and horns, antlers. Lots and, and lots of horns. And beautiful, beautiful areas that people don't ever, ever get to see yeah, dude. in Hawaii. And we're and way... Rainforest, it's got the desert climates, it's got all of the lava Arctic flows. And like, oh my gosh, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy, dude. It's crazy. How's the lava out here walking around? I saw you brought a brand new pair of boots. Dude, and one day. And it just day, ate them up. Over sandpaper. Ate them grinder up. Grinder right on the bottom. Just yeah. absolutely Holes ate them. Yeah. And that's thick, 
rubber. Yeah, dude. It's crazy how porous the, the rocks are here in the terrain and the fact that a lot of that stuff's hidden in the grass and it's super hard. So I look like a weebolo walking around in the woods. Yeah, you know, I'm not running in a straight line for sure. Well, when you're walking across those, those uh-uh fields of yeah. the sharp, you know, real crusty looking uh-uh uh, lava, that's where you really get messed up. And I think, you know, it's I've funny. fallen in that stuff, dude. You don't want to fall. No. I've ripped myself up. Yeah. You know, looking like I've needed stitches. Yeah. It's been so bad. No doubt. I started wearing knee pads years ago. It's funny because everybody asks me, you know, what's a Western Extreme guy doing all the way in Hawaii? And I always say, well, that's the furthest Western destination a guy can hunt. And it's definitely the West. In the U.S. Yep. Yeah, because you can actually go farther West. Right. Yep. And but hopefully you get to go West with me this year to Australia. I'm in, bro. For the Rusa rut. I'm in. in July. And if not, you know, we'll fall back to um, springtime, even this time next year. Yeah. For the fallow hunt. I just came back from there. Got that nice big fallow yeah, deer. And, and really also cool. the red stags are in rut at the same time. And it's one of the most amazing places I've ever been in my life. Troy Reynolds, Adam Bossy, these guys took care of me. I can't wait for you guys to meet him. Adam Greentree. And... And it was it was literally the hunt of a lifetime. Yeah. It was the best trip of a lifetime. No doubt, bro. And I can't wait. Well, we're going to wrap things up here. Jim, do you have any sponsors you want to thank? I just want to thank everybody that supported me in my life, and I want to thank my mama first. Yeah. Right? Got to love your mama. Uh, everybody loves moms. Yeah. I want to thank mom for everything she did for me. Yeah. No, it's all good, bro. It's all good. Um, do you have any tattoos? Do you have a mom tattoo? No, I don't have a mom tattoo. Oh, Sorry about that. we can't finish up real quick. Have you ever seen, and what's the creepiest thing that you've seen in the forest? Have you seen UFOs? Have you seen ghosts? No. No? No. Oh, if there okay. was a UFO or a Martian or a ghost, I probably would have shot it already. I would have added <laughs> yeah. that to my trophy Do you believe room. in them? No. Really? I don't. Okay, I'm going to tell you a scary story later. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Friday the 13th all Dude, over again? Dude, real. Dude, it's the real deal. Full? Oh, my God. I'm going to scare the shit out of you. All right. Okay, so back to thanking of the sponsors. No, I'm all good. That's it, bro. I'm all mom? good. I love everybody. I love mom. Yeah. Love mom. Well, I want to thank my sponsors. I want to thank you for coming, first of all. Yeah, you're, dude. Appreciate you. You're an you. awesome person. I can't wait till next year. And um, GoPro, uh, Hurley, Kona Boys. You got to experience Kona, Kona Boys. Boys, bro. Frank and Brock. Kona Boys, bro. Yeah, those guys took care of you. Yeah, they did, they man. They gave you a little like, Oh, dolphin. it was amazing. It was amazing. We yeah. got to go out there and hang out, and those guys were great. You know, they're so humble, and they're kind, and they just were... They just love surfing and, and how cool is the shop too? Oh, They've man, got everything dude. in it. Oh man! Oh man! From stand up paddle boards. I think to my credit card came up a couple of different times, but they they totally <laughs> hooked me up yeah. on the, on being able to go out there that morning, and it was just extraordinary. We had a really fun time out snorkeling and and yeah. the, the paddle boards, and that's where Captain Cook actually lost his life. Which well, like that's here where in Hawaii. he discovered Hawaii. Yeah, but also lost his life. Yeah, it's amazing, like how how well and how versed he was, and where he traveled, and the storytelling of that was worth the trip alone. Yeah, exactly. For sure. And those, you know, I think they even gave us the old Doze Nose uh, discount. You know, fifteen percent yeah. off at Doze Nose. So if you guys ever want to hook up with Frank and Brock at Kona Boys, make sure you go down to the King Cam. Uh, to the beat check there or to their store or find them online at www.conaboys.com. Yeah. And punch in Doe's Nose or walk in and say Doe's Nose and you get immediately 15% off. 
It's good to know, Doz. It's good to know, Doz. You always get good stuff. Um, then I also got Kona Coffee and Tea. All that good coffee we've been drinking every single morning, that's from Kona Coffee and Tea. Very cool. Usually I go in there in the mornings. I get to sit down and say hi to everybody. They're always asking me, who's your next world guest? World-renowned. World-renowned Kona Coffee. Yeah. They're always like, who's your next guest? And I'm like, you guys got to wait and see, man. Tune in. Tune in. But everybody knows you can find me in the mornings at Kona Coffee and Tea. Um, let's see. Deuce Jim, do you work out? Nope. You're, not much. You I'm just all 200, these 250 days a year I'm gone. And so I'm just walking as fast and as hard as I can. Not well, a real bench lifter yeah well you know i i like to try and keep my girlish figure yeah. here you know and look hot for the ladies yeah and so Important. when i'm in venice beach i go to deuce gym yeah and these guys are awesome my good friend logan who's also my partner in this podcast hey cool and you know these guys they work with anybody and everybody for whether you're eight or 80 or 40 pounds or 400 pounds you know they're going to help you get fit in shape and healthy that's the key and i'll guarantee you a lot of those guys that are in that thing can do hike these mountains with us i'll bet yeah i'll bet he also started another company called original nutritionals and i personally think it's the best supplement brand that's a neat name there is yeah and you know these guys are it's just clean food for your body yeah just like what we're out there doing hunting so um, thank you guys. And let's see, did I miss anybody else? GoPro? GoPro? Those tiny did small it. cameras? I know you've got everybody a ton of one. Them. I, don't I, think them. I, I think I have 11 of them. 11? Yeah, I have 11. I'm sponsored by them, and I don't have 11. Well, they need to hook them up. I'm telling you, GoPro, I need some more cameras. And Hurley, you know those board shorts I gave you the other day? So yeah. you could go, yeah, Very swim cool. with the dolphins? Yeah. Yeah, best board shorts on the planet. Anyway, well, thank you guys for joining us on another episode of Joe's Nose. Jim, thank you for being my hey, guest. Thanks, bro. I really appreciate you spending time. Yeah, we're going to have to do this again. Let's do it in Australia. Okay. Yeah, and we'll get some Aussies to sit down at the table with us, and we'll all just talk big story. Put up a bunch of microphones and a couple of beers, and, yeah, have some fun. Kick back. Yeah, well, thanks, everybody. Join us next week for another special guest. And hope you guys have a great day. Mahalo, aloha, uh, hui ho. Everybody knows those knows. Everybody knows those knows. Everybody knows those. And if you don't know.